Well, greetings, everybody, and welcome once again to another episode of the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland. Excited to bring you an interview I recently had with Mike Schneider. Schneids, as many of you know, uh, Mike first put himself on the poker map by winning a, a million dollars in the online tournament, and uh, he'll talk a little bit about that. He's one of the few members of the Minnesota Poker Hall of Fame and just an absolutely great guy. Done a lot of work in supporting what we do with charity poker tournaments and uh, always been one of the first ones to help whenever we uh, have something that we need. So I think you'll enjoy the conversation with Mike. As I've mentioned, this first round of interviews is really about getting to know people, getting to know their high-level philosophy on the game, some of those things that they see as errors that uh, that players make that they're uh, up against quite a bit. And hopefully all of that will help us improve our game Mike has also agreed to circle back with him in the future and break down some specific hands. So we'll get into more deeper strategy later, but I think there's some good insights just from this discussion. I also just want to give a quick shout out to the Free Poker Network, who have been just great supporters of the Rec Poker Podcast. Uh, as always, they got those free poker games going every night of the week all over the place. You can play for free, you get points, you qualify in your bar, you can make it to the region, you can make it to the state, you can make it to nationals, you can win World Series of Poker seats, and who knows from there where it goes. But it's just a great way to get to know people, a great way to work on your game. It's a free uh, free night of poker, and so there's a little bit of ease on your bankroll there. Uh, but just check that out, freepokernetwork.com. I encourage you guys to get involved there. All right, with that, uh, why don't we turn it over to the interview that I recently had with Mike Schneider. All right, everybody. Well, I'm here with Mike Schneider, a Minnesota Poker Pro. Uh, excited to spend some time with you, Mike, and get all your secrets so that <laughs> so that we can all beat you at the tables. Well, yeah, I'm happy to be here. I'll share what I know, but uh, yeah, I I hope I'm still beating everybody even after this. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I have a, I have a feeling that'll continue. <laughs> but I've gotten to know you a little bit just through All In For Africa, and we we don't really play the same tournaments generally, even though we've been at a few tables. Together, I've I've had you win a pot off of me that I'm still I've I've actually talked about on the podcast playing this hand against you and I still don't know if you're toying with me. I actually I heard that podcast and thought about sending you a message, but I never did. Like if you if you want to talk about right now, we quickly could if you remember it. Like I. I remember certain aspects of it. I'm not sure if I get all the details right, but well, what I remember is we were we were late in day one. Yep. Uh, I think we were just literally like four or five hands from the end. Uh, I was in middle position. I think you were in the big blind. Yeah. Um, if is that your yep. recollection? So as far, well? so good. Yeah. Uh, I had pocket tens in this spot, and I raised, and I believe you re-raised me pre-flop. Uh, I believe I just called you then pre-flop, and then you ended up just effectively putting me all in on the flop. And I think it might have been a king high flop or something, something like that. So I was trying to decide, you know, my, my decision was pre-flop, are my 10s just good enough to go with knowing that you're going to be putting a lot of pressure on me? You had a monster stack at that point in time. Yeah. And so part of it was pre-flop, what's my action? Is it a fold? Is it a call? Is it a shove? And then on the flop, you're going to continue that 100% of the time is what I'm figuring now looking back. Yeah, my my take was if I were you, I'd probably just go all in pre-flop. Yeah. Just due to the nature of I had a ton of chips. Even though I don't, I think I got moved to the table not that long Correct. before that hand. So you had no clue at that point if I was cooling people or playing a lot of hands or how I got them. But I would say like for me at that point in the tournament, though, I like I knew you were. I think maybe like 
half average stack or like a little bit below average stack. Like I, I think I probably have a large enough three betting range out of there that your tens are going to be facing a coin flip a lot or even some pocket nines or eights a few times. And I just, my, my general take would be that you probably had at least 50% equity in order to shove, or I might even fold your all in too, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think I had about 70K, 100K was average somewhere in that ballpark and you came in with like three or 350, something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so then from me, like being a big stack towards the end of day ones, your goal is to attack the the people that are medium stacks, the medium, yeah, the medium, medium, small stacks, two small stacks. They just don't fold and will call you or the large stacks. You don't necessarily want to tangle with and lose half your chips in the last three hands of the day, but afford to fold and still make it through to day two like me. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's a (laughs) little bit that you'll probably be getting picked on a little bit just due to the nature of where we were at in day one. But I do remember I had aces that hand. So Did you, you actually? Yeah, you, you got away from it, <laughs> yeah, which is good. But that's not the point. Yeah, that, the point I mean, yeah, the, the point is I have more than aces yeah. in that spot. Well, the very next hand, I picked up ace-king and lost the rest of my stack anyway. So yeah. it turned out, okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. But, but, yeah, I think it's more of that, that ranging thing and knowing that you have a big stack, knowing that you have an aggressive nature, knowing that you're looking for a lot of folds, looking to build. Yeah, right, I, was, yeah. I was wondering what the right play was there. Okay. Very good. Well, okay, <laughs> sweet. Well, thank you for sharing yeah. that. Um, but anyway, so so all for Africa, I got to know you a little bit through that. Uh, but just start maybe a little bit with your your background. Uh, mm-hmm. If you want to share some of your personal stuff, that's cool. Your love of cats, or just <laughs> or just generally, you know, who are you? Where are you from? How'd you well, get into poker? That kind of thing. Yeah. Well, I guess I could start with how I got into poker. So that going way back to uh, the year 2002. I was a senior in high school, and I love when people are so young. They say going way yeah, back. Yeah. Well, <laughs> for, for some me, of us, it's not as far back. Yeah. <laughs> a senior so, in high school, 2002. Senior in high school. Yeah. So it was over spring break, and I went to Arizona for a. For a high school baseball trip and while I was gone there a bunch of my friends who were in Minnesota decided to start playing some poker games so I got back from Arizona they're like hey we're playing some poker now do you want to come over and my response like I'm a very risk averse person I not much into gambling per se and so I was just like well I guess I'll come play but like I don't know how to play can you guys like make me a cheat sheet of what beats what <laughs> right. and so I went yeah. over and played and we were playing like 5 cent 10 cent 10 cent 25 cent kind of limit games and then just by the end of before we went off to college I like had ended up winning like 350 or 400 dollars just playing with friends at like nickel and dime stakes yeah so by then went off to for freshman year of college went to Iowa State and I ended up like on a dorm floor with a bunch of people that were like agriculture, farming kind of majors and went around asking everybody, nobody wanted to play cards. So (laughs) I just started playing a little bit online. And then by the end of my freshman year, I ended up transferring back up to the University of Minnesota where I finished out my last three years of school. And then by the sophomore summer, like that's time when most people would be getting internships and stuff related to their degree. And I came home and was living at home with my parents and told them, I think I just want to try playing poker this summer. And they, as I would expect, especially as I get older and age now and appreciate the whole aspect of wanting what's best for your kid, they, they weren't really in approval of it. And even got to the point where I started like looking at like moving out to a few apartments just cause I, Felt like I just needed to try it while I was young and yeah. still could possibly rebound if it didn't work out. 
Yeah, so we ended up coming to an agreement that I ended up that summer making a blog of my play while I played poker because I was a journalism major at mm. the time. So at least I was like, all right, I'll make a blog so I have something to show a potential employer someday so they don't just think I did nothing all summer. Right. And then that went okay and then just kind of snowballed from there to the point where we are now. So you had and some success over the summer. Yeah, yep. Where, what were you playing that first summer at, online? That first summer it was on party poker at mm -hmm. like uh, five, like mostly 10, 20, six max limit hold'em. Like that was, yeah, that was kind of in the, yeah, cash games, yep. yeah, all in the beginning of the heyday of the party poker era. Okay. So what was your hometown, Minnesota? Where were you from? In Egan, Minnesota. Okay, so Egan to Iowa State, back yeah. at the U of M. Yep. Played some poker online, justified by writing a blog. Yeah, yep. and, then and then did you continue to get your degree? Did you yeah, go all the way through? Yeah, I did go all the way through. Okay. I actually was a double major in journalism and math, and... I'm starting got, to like you more already. <laughs> got to the point where, like, the last, like, year or two of college, I just, due to poker, like, playing higher and higher games and online, I wasn't going to a ton of classes. Mm -hmm. And I was able to make that work getting through all the calculuses, but yeah. the classes beyond that, I, I quickly learned that it was very hard to cram two days before a final and learn the material. For so, abstract math. Yeah, so I got to the point where I remember the, the class that did me in with math was actually called the theory of interest. Oh, yeah, sure. Which... Yeah, I just couldn't put it together in like two or three days and yeah. then decided, all right, I'm just going to finish up my journalism degree. We're done with math classes. I'm probably never going to use the math degree anyway in life. So, right. yeah, so I did end up finishing with the journalism degree and have not used it really since other than summer of 2006, I wrote a blog for the Star Tribune on their on their website while I was playing during the World Series of Poker. Really? So, that was the only time I've really actually put the journalism degree to use. So that the timing you said 2006, that was, was that after then? Because 2006 was the year that you had the big online score, right? Yeah. So yep. was this? Did they hit you up for that blog after the score, or was that? Before? It was a random chance that it worked out because that senior year, I one of my professors had was working at the Star Tribune or had like just recently worked at the Star Tribune at the time, and she was aware of my Party Poker Million score, so. She kind of approached me about like, yeah, like I think I I might know some people at the Star Tribune that maybe want you to like write something poker related for them. You have any interest? And so I was like, sure, why not? My parents would like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So just well, that one summer, I wrote maybe about once or twice a week over the course of about eight weeks. And so you really haven't done any other writing since then. You had no other blogging, no other articles. Nothing or like that. seriously. I yeah. wrote like. Uh, because I also am affiliated with cardrunners.com, which, I mean, hell, I haven't made a video for them in quite a long time, but mm -hmm. there was a stretch where they they had a, several of us who made videos for them. We were also doing some articles for, I think it was Bluff Magazine, maybe? So, like, I had maybe one or two articles show up in Bluff. Okay. And outside of that, no other writing other than I have about 250 pages in a Word file for a currently unfinished like 90 95 percent limit hold'em strategy book that oh. i've worked on over the last about eight years or so and just open it up every six months and edit it a little bit here and there and just kind of sitting on it maybe i'll never release it maybe someday i will release it i'm not really sure yet but 
more or less just waiting to see if there's ever an online poker revival in America, which that'd be a good time to release it. Or right. or if I ever go happen to like win a World Series bracelet, then try to release it there. Just waiting for the right time to basically. Okay. It's so not stay tuned, maybe <laughs> on that. Huh? Yeah, I've been saying that the last like five years though, so it might okay. be uh, it might just stay on my laptop forever. I'm not sure yet. Well, I've heard patience is a good thing as a card <laughs> player, so maybe also yeah. in in life. What's the right timing for? <laughs> For the book release. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's back up to the party poker and the, the big score. I know yeah. a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear about that. That's, uh, you know, I don't know your whole career, but I'm assuming that's sort of what put you on the map. And you, I believe that was 2006, so that must have been right your senior year of college. At least the timing must have been right around that year. You either had just graduated or you're about to graduate. Yeah. And a big score, which I think was like a $10,000 buy-in. Yeah, yeah. So things must have been going pretty well because you'd moved up from $0.10, cent, $0.20, cent, <laughs> to a $10,000 tournament yeah, buy-in. Yep. And then, so, so walk me through that, like the, the process of deciding to enter that. Was that a common thing? And then that actual day that you, you took down the million dollars. All right. So for that, like leading up to, so that was in like uh, March or April of 2016. So by like mid-late 2015 or so, I was playing like 5,100, 100, 200 limit okay. hold'em games online. So it just got to the point where... That cruise ship, I several of my buddies around Minnesota had qualified on PartyPoker.com to go there and play the tournament, and I had no interest really in tournaments at all at that point in my life. And they convinced me, they're like, "Oh, why don't you just like come with on the cruise ship anyway?" So I, I didn't realize this. Yeah, you could. Yeah, it was on a cruise ship in the Bahamas. I'm sorry. Yeah, it's sorry. You already won just by going there. Yep, it was. It was a live (laughs) tournament, not online. Although they had hundreds of qualifiers online that got their seats. No, I know it's affiliated with Party Poker. Live tournament on a cruise ship. Yeah. Yep. They did that for like six six years or so. I think I was actually the last year they did that cruise ship. So something you did caused them to, to no yeah, more. Yeah, that, either that or they just kept on shoving no limit hold'em in everybody's face and decided, uh, all right, we can't run a $10,000 limit hold'em event anymore. Which is what that was. It was limit Yeah, hold'em. yep, it was okay. a limit hold'em tournament. So, so yeah, so I ended up booking, uh, I guess, a room on the cruise ship or whatever you'd call it without any plans of playing the tournament at all. I was <laughs> just going to go there. Like, I brought cash. I was going to, like, I knew there'd be cash games. I was going to play cash games. Then kind of as we got there, and there was a lot of buzz, and like friends were like, oh, you should play, I'll buy a piece, and blah, 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 blah. And so finally I was like, all right, I guess I'll play. And then I sold some pieces, swapped some action with other players, yeah. and that was pretty much the almost the first tournament I'd ever played in my life. I mean, I played like a few around Canterbury, just like the Fall Classic and that kind of stuff, but more or less my first foray into an actual serious high buy-in tournament. Not a bad start. Yeah. And so... <laughs> You know, I don't play Limit Hold'em, but, you know, you think about that tournament, if you can recall. I mean, obviously, there's times you win tournaments where the deck just hits you in the head. There's times where variance is just constantly in your favor. Obviously, you need positive yeah. variance to win a tournament. And, and then there's tournaments that you win where you feel like, man, I just played really well. How, how would you characterize that tournament? Well, I mean, uh, to win any tournament, you have to get really lucky. So, yeah, I got lucky. But, like, the end of day one of it, I ended up uh, with, like, three big blinds or so. Mm-hmm. Three and a half big blinds. I think I had, like, a 7,000 chip stack. And the <laughs> blind, like, it was going to be, like, 1,000. It's, like, 500, 1,000 blinds, 1,000, 2,000 limit at the start of the day two. Okay. So, yeah, at that point, just went in. Basically, you have to get lucky to run up a chip stack from that point in a limit holding tournament. Yep. and. Then by the end of day two, I managed to be one of the bigger big 
the sacks <laughs> left in it. And yeah, I only, I mean, I remember one specific hand in, from that whole tournament, which it was against Kenna James, like when there was maybe like 15 players left or so, where uh, he open raised king queen, I three bet him with ace 10, he four bet me, I called, the flop came 10 high, and uh, he bet I. He bet, uh, I, I think it was I just called, and then the turn was another low card, and he bet three bet me on the turn, and I four bet him, which is, <laughs> in hindsight, that's way too much action for like <laughs> limit hold'em, but okay. I just like had a read and a sense of where he was at, and, and unfortunately for me, the river was the king, and he checked and I checked behind, but I, that hand just stands out for me. Like At that point when I played that hand and my reads were so spot on to four yeah. bet him on the turn and then check when the king it's came on the river, over, yeah. it... Just, I mean, even though I lost the pot and went from being, like, the second biggest stack to, like, the 10th out of 15 left, like, mm-hmm. it just, that hand gave me a little extra confidence of, all right, like, these, most of these guys don't know who I am, but I can compete with them. And, and yeah, I think that's and, a good, I mean, it's a good thing to call out. We, we do this on a lot of the episodes, but for people that tend to be, the recreation players, the less experienced players, tend to be so focused on the result, there you're looking at a hand where you lost a big, a big pot. And people could be questioning themselves and, oh, what did I do wrong and all these things, which it's good to at least question it, but you, you have to look at the decision-making process all the way versus just the result. Yeah. You're putting money in when you had the best hand and you slowed down when you didn't. Yeah, yeah. So perfectly played hand even though you lost the pot. Yeah. <laughs> so if you look at um, shifting gears a little bit, you have a math background, but I heard you in there say, you know, I just trusted my read about where he was at. How would you characterize you as a as a player. I, you know, some people tend to be more analytical, some are patient versus aggressive, you've got GTO people versus feel people. Well, how do you characterize your perspective of the game? I try to go into it with a balanced approach with all of those things. Like I've read a lot about game theory, optimal play, know a decent amount about it, but I do not subscribe to it nearly as much as most of the people who study it. Just because the way I look at it is we're playing with human players and most human players make a lot of mistakes, including myself. Like I make mistakes playing hands all the time. And, mm-hmm. and to me, there's way, way more money to be made in exploiting people's imperfect play versus it's like the whole theory of game theory optimal play is to make, make, your, make it so whatever you do to your opponent, whatever, whatever they do in response to your decision, it doesn't really change. They have no right decision to make. It's all kind of like an equal balance. Right. And to me, that just seems like you're leaving money on the table. You can always come up with extreme examples to show why game theory optimal play isn't working. Like, say, for example, hypothetical world, we have a guy who anytime he checks, he folds. Anytime he bets, he's never going to fold. So you flop him, say you flop a set against him and he checks. Like in a GTO world, you don't, you aren't considering what he does Mm -hmm. where the real life world says you should check because you know he's going to fold if you bet. Right. And or likewise, if you like say you have queen jack on the flops eight seven six and he checks like in the GTO world you have a checkback range there x percent of the time, but in this world you know you can exploit him by betting every mm-hmm. time. So mm-hmm. to me, like I I understand the GTO play and I definitely try to apply it against tough players, but. 
I, I put way more credence and value in trying to exploit people's tendencies. Yeah, so it's kind of GTO versus exploitative is yeah. how I've heard it characterized, and you're saying more exploitative. Do you use GTO for things like shoving ranges at all, or is that still... That's that's a little more, yeah, once your stack is small enough, it's yeah. the cards are going to play themselves a lot more. Or it's a single decision, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. So now looked a little bit at your hidden mob stats. Now it's a little bit misleading because... You play primarily cash. Yeah, that, yep. I would say like 90, 95% of my poker playing is cash of yeah. the limit poker variety. So yeah. I dabble in tournaments a little just for a change up and a break and just something to something to give me a little new experience from what I play almost every day. Right. Yeah, so the Hand and Mob, you know, is really around tournament poker, you know, stats. And obviously you've got the you got the million-dollar hit out there, but you still got like 1.6 million in overall earnings. So you've you've done well. Besides yeah. the million-dollar score, you've, you've done pretty well in tournaments, even though you don't play yeah. that a lot. And it was interesting. I was scrolling through there just to see where you've played. And I'm like, what's this $125? Oh, you played all in for Africa. <laughs> I was so confused. Yeah. I was looking at, you know, MSPT, MSPT, then here's the 125. But, but primarily for tournaments, you're playing... The MSPTs, the World Series of Poker, the bigger buy and things like that, right? Yeah, I pretty much my tournament schedule will stick to some of the local stuff around Minnesota if I'm free, which started the last couple of years not playing too many of the two or three hundred dollar buy in local events, but mm-hmm. the five hundred and a thousand if I have the weekend free, I'll typically play them, and then otherwise I go out to Vegas and fire anywhere from two to six or seven World Series events, which being cash game player, what I like about that is if I'm not feeling in a tournament mood, I just don't play. So yeah. I re- like I haven't booked a Vegas flight yet, and I probably won't till four days before I go. And that's just how I've always done Vegas for tournaments. I just okay. wait till we get there, get close to it. And I, I let, sometimes I'm craving tournaments and want to play a bunch. Other times it's just like, oh, that doesn't sound that appealing, so I'm just not going to. Well, if you're going in mid-June, you need a place to crash. We're, we've got a condo rented, so, okay. so, so let me know on that deal <laughs> if you want to crash. Yeah, that makes it easy. We yeah. won't require all of your knowledge. You can just crash there. But um, So I'm curious a little bit because you're a very effective cash player. Um, why play tournaments at all? I look at it as a lottery ticket, basically. I mean, the honest truth, like, uh, I mean, it's just something different from betting fixed structure all the time. Like, it's, for me, it, like, makes the game a little more fun, too, just getting to play something that I play once a month instead of 26, 27 days a month. So mm-hmm. big reason I play is just for, for me, it's a break from my daily life of poker playing. And have you always been a, a poker player? Have you ever had a, a job other than being a poker player? I have had a senior year of high school. I pushed carts at Sam's Club. Sure. And then uh, summer of the freshman year of college, I did data entry for a law firm. So I've had two jobs in my life. Just enough to know you'd rather play poker. Yeah, although there's <laughs> there's days and months where I... I right. would probably say right. the nine to five sounds pretty appealing. When the variance like it, the yeah. catches up with you a little bit. Yep. Yeah. It, Are you able to find enough? Uh, I know you play some of the tournaments that come through locally in the World Series, but in terms of cash games, are you able to find enough in Minnesota to be you know to provide an income? The cash yeah. games are big enough and they're frequent enough. 
Primarily yep. Canterbury. Yeah, maybe. mostly if I play cash games, it's at Canterbury or online. I also play a good amount. So you can you plug for whoever you, who do you use online? I use Ignition Poker these days, which I mean, hard for me to give them a plug at this point. But sure. okay. I mean, they're, I mean, they're still legit in that they pay you cash. But mm. they're, long story short, they keep on making changes to their software that are not positive for anybody, and they don't seem to care. So. Where do you think it's going? Do you think online will become a more of a, a reality and more accessible, or do you think it's going to be continue to be where it is and just kind of going down? I really hard to predict. I mean, yeah. for a long time, I feel like everybody always thinks we're a couple of years away from online poker getting legalized, and it makes a lot of sense for the federal government to tax and regulate it. But mm. really hard to say. Like at this point, I just I'm gonna going forward assuming that online poker this is what it is yeah. and for the foreseeable future okay okay so what if you look at your game what what are your keys to success now again for the audience yeah. mike plays primarily fixed but you also play some no limit yeah. uh, so if you need to differentiate depending on the game do that but just in general what what makes you a successful player are you just that much smarter than the rest of us or what is it um I feel like for a lot of poker players that are successful, they have, I mean, several traits in common. Like, I, I know really good poker players that aren't good at math. Like, I don't think I don't think having a mathematical mind is a prerequisite to succeeding at poker. But I for me, I'd say, I mean, just patience and discipline are huge for any poker player. Like, you can be the best player in the world, but if you play bad 20% of the time because you're on tilt or frustrated or whatever, like, those 20% those sessions those are all just going to implode the rest of your results so you have you have to be patient you have to be disciplined those are very important and then i feel like i have pretty good like logic and pattern recognition and those kind of abilities which play play a huge role in just being able to recognize like different betting tendencies and and just I don't know, lost for lost for words about what exactly it is, but it's a lot of little tangible things that just all add up to making somebody a successful player. Because you know that I mean variance is going to even out over time. Yeah. All those pieces. So patience and discipline, I'm curious about that. Do you are you just naturally a patient and disciplined person or do you feel like you've had to work at that? And the same thing with the logic and the betting patterns. Is that something that just comes natural to you or have you spent time trying to improve in that skill? Um, honestly, probably both comes pretty naturally to me. I mean, that isn't to say I don't put in work away from the table too, like looking at hand ranges and doing crunching, like I have this hand, like how does it fare against this, 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 and this, these five different hands and just all that kind of stuff. But I, a lot of those things I think are just built into me. And I really haven't, I haven't like read any books on how to have emotional control or studied in any capacity like that. It's mm -hmm. just something that... And I'm just fortunate enough to already possess, I think. And that's the interesting thing about a lot of the people that I've interviewed so far, I would say are similar in that. They just have that sort of personality that is more, I want to say laid back. I don't mean laid yeah. back, but I mean just more disciplined or or logical yeah. about about things and less visceral in their responses. <laughs> but I mean, I'm interested to talk yeah. to some people that have that other side of it and how, they, how do they get to that point where they can play more disciplined. I'm curious, you said, you know, the, the work that you do off the felt, is there any kind of a proportion in terms of how much do you play versus how much do you study? Like, like how many hours relative to what you play are you studying? Well, I mean, 
Or is it just experience? It, now it's mostly just experience. Like I still do crunch like a little bit of stuff in either poker stove or just getting on a calculator. But now it's not, I mean, not more than like 5% of my time. But compared to like the first several years I played, I read on 2plus2.com every day. I posted every day and it was probably more like spending one, two or three hours per day just studying for several years. Like that, that really helped build a solid foundation. So the, the calculating, the, the number crunching that you do, is that proactive or is that reactive after, you know, you just played a hand and now, you know, after the fact you're going back in and assessing more, it? More often reactive, yeah. but I mean, even just, I mean, I, because as I was writing, trying to write that Limit Hold'em book too, some of, a lot of those hands were just from hand, stuff I played and then I'd occasionally come up with other just little scenarios that I was curious about. Mm-hmm. Like, for example, just give a quick little example, like based on my my math of looking at like heads up ranges, if you're in the big blind and you call on a button open raise playing heads up limit hold them and the flop comes say like ace eight three, like I concluded like in a vacuum without considering prior history against most opponent types, it'd be profitable to check raise 100% of the time there and bet the turn. Mm-hmm. Like assuming the opponent isn't gonna play back at you with air Right. And giving them credit for if they pick up any redraw on the turn or or pair on the turn, they're going to call you down or at least call to the river. And like just like things like that, where it's like, OK, like in a vacuum, which in a vacuum just means if we're <laughs> looking at just just this one hand without without any history. So we don't leave, there's nothing like the opponent has caught us bluffing four straight times that is going to make uh, make them not believe us again. Just if this is the only hand of poker we play in our life against this opponent, it's profitable to bluff check raise it and bet the turn 100% of the time against them hmm. so which that by just like looking at creating like a range of like say they open raise 70% top 70% of their hands and then looking at each possible hand whether it hit the that flop or missed it or has a draw or and then from there like looking at all the possible turn cards and saying all right now with the turn cards which of these hands that missed the flop either turn to pair or turn to draw and aren't going to fold and even still just like doing all those calculations concluding okay like you can check raise a flop and bet the turn every time and it's going to show a profit to do so over the long run yeah Mm -hmm. which is a cash player yeah i mean it's it's either a cash player or tournament you still want to have the the results over the long run it seems easier in a cash game to say if i do this every time i'm going to make money in a tournament it feels like you need to overlay that with i guess tournament structure where you're at i see yeah. implications because yep. if you're on There's... the bubble it might not make sense to do that because of the survival right, yeah. of a tournament yep yeah what i'm saying yeah, yeah. exclusively be for cash, limit yep. hold on cash like no limit tournament if you're just going to check raise an ace flop like that every time you're probably going to run into trouble yeah. doing so and i wouldn't advise it but <laughs> so, so mike said check raise an ace yeah. flop all the time <laughs> especially against mike especially against mike exactly <laughs> so i'm curious about the you, you talked about the betting patterns and the logic is that do you think that comes from doing so much online where you're thinking about frequencies or you have the calculations all the time or is is that just always been your deal in a live game? You can pick that up. Because when you say betting patterns and, and and logic, are you talking about frequencies in a sense of, yeah, like, boy, that's they're always raising 3x, another... now they went 4x, or they're opening wider than most people open, or they're, you know, they're, they're firing only one bullet and then they're folding on the turn. Is that the kind of stuff you're talking about? Yeah, I'd say you uh, put that in a nutshell like, pretty, pretty accurately. Just 
Yeah, I. You could just remember. I mean, you just feel like you have the capacity to remember who's been doing what. Yeah, I mean, just yeah. to yeah, like like playing live, just to be able to get a good sense of how active each person is, and just making getting it stored in my memory pretty well. What, how off how often I'm seeing them bat and having a, just a good feel of where they're at and. What, the, what they've been doing what and they're using, trying to get you to do yeah and using that basically like playing like a big game of rock paper scissors then like <laughs> using that where we have the prior info and now trying to predict is like they've fired they've fired rock or like they've bet the flop four straight times are they going to do it a fifth time what does that mean how many times of those four did we see if they had it or not and trying to use all that information to make your best educated guess about what it might mean for the next encounter with them and so do you remember all of those things specifically, or is does each individual hand build up some sort of perspective on your head about that player? Like the reason I ask is because I know myself and a lot of others we struggle with. Okay, I noticed that. I noticed that. I'm paying attention, but I can't remember all of that. So, am I really trying to remember those specific things, or is it more building up a, I guess, a, a picture of what type of player? It's more like it is? a sweeping abstract picture per se. Like nothing. Yeah. Like we're playing a game with incomplete information so like nothing's ever precise but mm-hmm. yeah i like i wouldn't be able to tell you like all right they've raised eight times they've okay. got the flop five times nothing like that it's just getting a general picture of it and of each player and trying to use that information because i think that that can be a message that some of us catch uh, even though it's not what's being told yeah is that there the people are remembering all of these things like like that they, they've opened eight hands now we four of them have gone to showdown three of them they had it one they didn't the yeah. Other four, they had a, you know, they had they lifted their left elbow off the table. I mean, <laughs> all of these sorts of things. And what I'm hearing from you is what I would expect it to be more like reality is you're just building this picture. Yeah, I'm building. Yeah, just an abstract picture. I yeah. I think you'd go crazy trying to trying to hone in that specifically on everybody and just like just building building those little little models of each player in my head and just trying to adjust it as I see something new and different and. And how much do you look at physical tells? Is that a big thing for you? Not a huge thing. Like I, I've definitely used physical tells before, and like I, I would advise if you're trying to look for tells, like really like invest those chips early in the tournament too, mm-hmm. especially when it's cheaper to possibly pick up something on somebody to then be able to use four hours later when the blinds are a lot bigger. I mean, like I've looked at you know like. Uh, pupils dilated a little bit or mm. or even just uh, I mean the way people put in chips sometimes can be another another way and yeah otherwise like uh, like Adam's apple kind of stuff can occasionally come into play but mm-hmm. nothing nothing too much like I, I I know some players are able to be like very good table talkers and get you get a feel for you like that like that's not my game I'm an introvert at heart and like that's just... <laughs> you don't go William Kasuf no. on everybody. <laughs> nope, yeah, not, <laughs> not how I play. <laughs> yeah, okay. So it would have to be, what I'm hearing is maybe occasionally you pick up on a tell, but it would probably even have to be a, a marginal decision for that to even... Right, you, yeah. You trust I, the betting patterns a lot. Yeah, I use more. a lot more of what do they do pre-flop, what do they do on the flop, this doesn't make sense on the turn, now they're doing that on the river, the whole story of the way they're presenting their hand doesn't make sense. Like, I use a lot more based on bet sizing or whether they bet or checked and like 
a lot of times, like, like as you're playing a hand on the flop and turn in river, as more information becomes available, it's, it's almost like a little story is being told about the hand, mm-hmm. so you have to make sure the story checks out, and like that, like, when the story doesn't check out like that, those are the times I might make a big call on the river with ace high, and it's not really any physical tell, it's just calling BS on the fact that the way you play the hand doesn't make sense for what you're representing, so yeah. if you tricked me, you tricked me, but it works more often than not just going with those kind of reads. And so talking about that a little bit with hand ranging, seems like one of the biggest skills in, in poker is this idea of hand ranging, of starting with, okay, somebody opened, somebody called, somebody did something, and then you narrow it down by the river and have a pretty good feel, at least on the combinations of hands that you think they might have. Is that an accurate depiction? Yeah, yeah, okay. totally. And, yep. and so how do you, how intentional are you about that? Is that become second nature for you just by the river you realize are they you know they're they're down to these whatever ten combinations of hands and I beat seven of them so it's a call or are you really honing in and really doing a lot of mental work starting, you know, when you get involved in a hand all the way through to the river? Um, I'd say it's just yeah, starting all the way through from the flop to the river and and then, uh, I mean, like, not to, like, plug Limit Hold'em anymore, but I feel like Limit Hold'em players have a big leg up on this aspect of piecing together, like, BS, BS ways people play hands don't make sense. Just just by nature of, like, Limit Hold'em cash games are, like, way quicker. You see a lot more hands, and you get to show down a lot more, so you mm. get a sense of the way how people play their hands post-flop, and even though the bet size are different and all this, all that kind of stuff. You still just by seeing so many showdowns and you get a, your, your BS radar really gets tweaked a lot by playing like a lot of limit hold'em. And I, I honestly like feel like that, like you look at like even like today, like like Loki just recently had, has been having a lot of tournament success. Like Luke has done pretty well. Gennady has done pretty well in these tournaments. Like, like I, like I do okay in them and like I think like or like even like going back even further to Blake, like Blake started off as a limit holding player. I think like a lot of limit holding players have the advantage of having seen so many more showdowns and ways people play hands and ways that people can play hands in weird ways that our BS radars are pretty honed and and I think people no limit players that haven't tried limit holding, I think they probably underrate that aspect of the game that we get to bring to the table and we play no limit holdem. I mean, sorry, I mean, probably a little bit different than what your question was, but a no, roundabout is, way of getting there. No, it's fantastic, and I know I don't play Limit Hold'em because I just don't really play cash at all. Yeah. Um, and I played I played cash, Limit Cash, like twice, and I remember within the first 15 minutes I had, like, pocket kings and pocket queens, raised what I could, you know, all the way <laughs> through, and, you know, flop of 7, 8, 9, and, you know, you lose because of the – it's just a different game. Yeah, yeah. But I think there's a lot of interesting things that you can learn from it. But I know for me, I was just like, all right, I have to focus on learning <laughs> one game, you know, versus versus two. So if you if you think about, you know, all the, all the cash games, all the tournaments you played, when you look at, you know, the opponents that you've had and a lot of people less experienced than yourself, like what are those buckets of – mistakes that you see people making all the time or the most common buckets of mistakes um well all right so we're going to talk no limit tournaments i would say in general people are playing too many hands in early position and limping with too many hands too like in general when i am playing i if nobody's under the pot yet i'm raising or folding and Mm -hmm. 
I see uh, a lot of less experienced players. They are limping a bunch, and so even in the higher dollar tournaments. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I, so I mean, I would say that, or even just bet sizing errors are uh, a lot of the other ones where, or even just like I like I've seen players in the thousand dollar buying tournaments. They'll have like a ten big blind stack. They'll open raise for four of their ten, and then and get fold. yeah, and then get put all in and fold, mm -hmm. which that just. That's just criminal to fold there. Like yeah. your, your your price is too good no matter what. In addition to the fact that I uh, I wouldn't really advise ever opening for four times the big blind ever. Just you're you're laying uh, too good of a price for people to three bet you and get you to fold. They're getting so much extra chips compared to if you open for two or two point five times the big blind and then have to fold, which. Only roundabout going back to that, the reason why you prefer a little smaller open raise is because losing a chip in a tournament is worth a lot more than whatever chips you gain if you gain a few extra chips. So, mm -hmm. so in general, like I approach tournaments of with the attitude of trying to conserve chips and like a like if you like comparing like folding for the two x versus the four x and those two big blinds you save like. You get a little bit later in the tournament, that potentially, when you're a short stack, that buys you an extra 10 to 20 hands worth of folding, possibly. Mm. I mean, if it's at the same level still a little bit, I yeah. should say. Or like I, I like looking at it that way of once you're a small stack. And I think a, a lot of less experienced players just don't know how to manage their stack at different small and medium-sized stacks where... Especially if they were, say they were at like uh, 60 big blinds and they were really comfortable, then maybe they take a bad beat and get down to 30. Then they play another hand and lose it. They're down to 20 big blinds. By now they're panicking and, mm -hmm. and feel like, oh, no, I got to get these chips back, where the reality is you still have 20 big blinds and you can remain patient. You got lots of time. You, you're not going to get to play as many hands as you used to when you have 60, when you have 60 but I think a lot of less experienced players, either when they're – their stack swings downwards or or just simply once they are a small stack they they underrate how much time they still have to be patient and they right. more or less punt off the rest of their chips because yeah. they want to get them back or just not feel like a small stack right which i you know I'm, i've been guilty of that too and part of that's the emotional side of it part of that is oh i don't want to play 20 big blinds i want to go for a big stack yeah there, there's a lot of that that happens for sure i've i've seen it firsthand myself and yeah. I think the other side can happen too you get the positive you know you get a big run up and all of a sudden you have too many chips and you feel unbeatable and you start yeah. wasting chips that way too so you have um so what I've heard is um, maybe playing too many hands in early position limping too much bet sizing errors are there other things yeah. where you look at and you just sort of smile on the inside just because you know that's you know must be an inexperienced player are those uh, the big ones those are probably the big ones I can think of anyway Okay, so I'm going to give you a, you, if you've listened to the podcast, what you said you have, you know, this will sound familiar, but I, I like this vague scenario. I think it helps some of the players out there. I'm going to give you a vague scenario. Normally when you're breaking down a hand, you have all of the information. This is just intentionally vague. What I'd love to hear from you is what information do you need to even make a decision? Okay. Okay, so you maybe know the scenario already, but uh, a player is under the gun and they raise. You're on the button. A player under, a player under the gun raises person to your right in the cutoff calls and you pick up ace jack what do you need to know to even know what to do here well i mean i would first say how many chips do they have how many chips do i have i mean that's question number one question number two like uh what point in the tournament are we are we level one are we on the bubble 
And then if we are on the bubble, going back to how many chips do they have and do I have, if, if I have a ton of chips and both of them are kind of small stacks, we're then asking ourselves uh, how many other small stacks are around? Are these players that are going to be trying to fold their way to their money? Are these players that are wanting to gamble and get a bigger stack? Like, like if it's Wazwaz open raising, you – he's going to play that smaller stack quite a bit differently than if it's a guy that satellited into the tournament. Mm. This is the first time ever playing. So you, you factor in all of those things. And then I would also ask myself, have, have I played hands against them? How active are they? Have they, is this first time I've seen them put in chips in an hour and a half? Is this the 20th time I have, have I three bet them at all? How, what hands have I shown down? If I have three bet them and, like a, a lot of just like factoring in what information do I have about them? What information do they have about me? And trying to go from there to uh, decide uh, what to do. Oh yeah, and plus also we still have the small blind and big blind behind us. How many chips do they have? How active have they been? Uh, like same thing of trying to piece together. Do we think there's somebody who is playing scared? Are they somebody who's fearless? And because uh, Ace Jack is definitely in those borderline hands right. where depending on Depending on all those other questions I just asked, you could fold, you could call, you could re-raise. Especially, I mean, like, the fold would be if it's a guy that you haven't seen play a hand in two hours and now he open-raised, and mm-hmm. it's it's a good chance he has ace-jack dominated isn't going to fold. Right. Nothing you're ahead of that. Yeah. Okay, so if you're, as you think about all those things, is there some sort of a checklist that you have, or this is just, this is part of the experience piece, is you're processing, you just sort of know where to go in your memory bank to pull out history and the psychology of how people might play this i think it's probably just experience by this point where a lot of that stuff just comes second nature and like i know especially like me compared to a lot of other people i'm always like when i'm in the seat not in hands or whatever like crane necking trying to see what the guy how many chips to the left the guys we have like i one of the things i am actually like fairly obsessive about is trying to know how many chips people have at the table especially the guys who are acting after me so at least the guys acting before me, if the action comes to me, it's a lot quicker to be able to look and verify that like, they still have about as many chips as I thought they had. But right. definitely a lot of that stuff, though, is just reflexive by this point. Just been playing poker 14 years now. It's just kind of like riding a bike at this point where most of it comes comes quickly with experience that I've had. Okay, so silly question uh, from a recreational player. Um, back on this scenario... You're in a vacuum. You, you like this scenario. You're in a vacuum. <laughs> All right. um, the person that opens has 60 big blinds and you have 25 versus they have 25 and you have 60. In a vacuum, what difference does that make? Is it simply because in one case they can bust you, in the other case they can't? Or is there something more about how open or, or, uh, tight they, or wide or tight they might be? Um, I think it's, for me anyway, it's more so to do with how tight or loose they might be. Like, I, I mean, if we're, like, at the final table of a tournament where we're starting to consider consider ICM and just uh, how much, you know, like, do we want to risk busting here to and end up finishing ninth place or wait for a better spot? But I mostly, until it's the final table, I mean – I know a lot of guys would say that chip stacks matter, but for me it's way more about how many hands I've played and how many hands they've played compared to the chip stacks. Okay. Like I like I love like made a game stuff and trying to that's all like related to exploitive play too and 
Like I, my answer probably wouldn't be too different based on uh, who has 60 or 25, which yeah, I know I listened to like Vlad's and I think he, I think he might've been completely opposite of that. Yeah. Like, or he, for him, the chip stack size really right. mattered. And, and that's why it's so good to get all these different perspectives because it's not necessarily a right answer. It's just, what do you give more weight to? I think they're both yeah. important, but which one are you giving more weight to? What I'm hearing from you is frequencies. Yeah, for me, yeah, it's all it's all about the, what ranges I think they could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I suppose so. It's really ultimately about what their range, what you depict their range to be, and what you have relative to that range. And so, to the extent that the chip stack dictates that range. It could impact their frequencies, which impacts yeah, their range. Yep. It could right, impact yeah. their, if their, they, the bully factor. Right, yeah. If they have 60 chip or 60 big blinds, yeah, they are opening probably more hands than they would if they have 25 or 20 or 40 or whatever. So, I mean, so, so that's, all, that's all factored into the range analysis, too, though. Yeah. And, and that's sort of my theory right now is it's really about determining their range and all of these other things that we talk about yeah. are impacting their range. Are they wider or narrower as a result of chip stack? player type, they got a phone call, yeah. whatever it might be, right? <laughs> yep. Okay, interesting. So what's next? What's on the horizon for you? What tournaments do you have coming up? What's, or, or, um, sounds like you maybe don't plan too far ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I'll play whenever the next MSPT is around here, and uh, I imagine I'll play the World Series of Poker main events. I usually do, although I have taken a few years off when I've just like gotten to that point and just been like, hey, I don't. So like possibly playing three, four, five, six, seven days doesn't sound fun right now. And you cashed, was it last year? Or was yeah, it yep, okay. last year. Yeah, yep, 15K, right? Yep. Okay. Yeah, so that, and cause last year I did not get to play any of the World Series of Poker Limit Hold'em events because I had a family vacation to Hilton Head during oh. the middle of the World Series. So Super sorry about that, too. <laughs> yeah, yep, tough life. But yeah. I, I imagine I'll play either one, two, or all three of the Limit Hold'em events this year. Okay. Like Hank Green for that because I missed all three of them last year. And beyond that, it'll probably just fly by the seat of my pants. I'm sure I'll play like the Millionaire Maker or or whatever that like really like deep stack no limit well, one was. The Marathon. Or the Colossus. The yeah, Marathon of any interest or is that too long? Zero again? interest for because me. Because it's yeah. too long. I, I, cause I, part of me playing tournaments is for like a fun break and to me playing a marathon style tournament doesn't sound fun same I, thing as the main event yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's a nice bucket list item whatever but from a yeah. pure enjoyment perspective it's not that exciting for you yeah yep unless you make day five or six right then. if you <laughs> just getting interesting yeah well tournaments are fun till you bust i'll give you that <laughs> right. so as long as you're accumulating chips they're a blast fair enough <laughs> fair enough well we're almost out of time here but any any final words things that you wanted to share that we didn't get out of you um i guess uh, probably nothing specifically just uh, if you're listening and you haven't played a limit hold'em cash game i as somebody that plays it all almost every day i'd encourage you to give it a try and if you do and Hit me up with a quick question on Twitter. You're welcome to. I'll probably be able to get your reply at Schneid's Poker. So S-C-H-N-E-I-D-S Poker is my Twitter. And happy to answer a quick question or two. If you do jump into Limit Hold'em, Omaha 8 or better, Stud 8 or better, those are kind of the three games that I play at Canterbury a lot. So I'd answer questions about any of those. Oh, super generous. Appreciate, yeah. appreciate you doing that. And then, But you are no Limit tournament player too so we might we might circle back with you if you're open to it and 
break down some no limit tournament yeah, games. Yeah, yep, definitely. As well, open but we'll, we'll maybe mix in some of the other stuff as well, even though I'm completely ignorant. <laughs> on that stuff but well maybe maybe just um another comment on that i appreciate you saying that uh, people you know follow mike he's a good follow um but if people are me uh, but if other people are interested in getting into some some of those other games what which okay for example i only play no limit hold'em tournaments yep. if if somebody were to say oh we should play something else what should that something else be what would be a good starting point is just going fixed Limit or is there Omaha or what? Where would you go from there? What would be the next game I would to try? Say probably fixed limit hold'em, just because I mean if you've played pot limit Omaha too, then Omaha eight or better would probably be a not too hard of a transition. But if you're going strictly from no limit hold'em tournaments, it'd probably be limit hold'em cash games and. And then uh, yeah, if you jump in like anytime I try a new game, which I. I wish I did get, got to do more often because that's when poker's at its funnest to me is trying out new games. But okay. when you jump into new games, I'd say just play overly tight and observe the table and try to try to figure out who you think the winning players are, and you just look at what they're doing and you just hmm. like I, that's one of the ways. How like I like when I first started playing 08, I knew there were a few players at the table that that had played a lot of 08 already, so just kind of. All right, I'm gonna play really tight, but I'm gonna really focus in on what they're doing and try to figure out why they're doing it or what they're doing and replicate it. So definitely say like new games, play play tight and slowly loosen up as you get more comfortable. And then usually happens with like players playing new games, they'll start off really tight, they'll get looser to the point where they're playing too loose. Then you make a correction back to right. hopefully around <laughs> where your happy medium is of how many hands you should be playing. Right. Well, good stuff. Thanks for your time. Appreciate you. Yeah. We'll see you on the felt again. You. I'm yeah. not going to fold my pocket tens yeah. to you, <laughs> even though it would have been a mistake at that point. But I mm-hmm. uh, appreciate your time, Mike, yep. and we'll circle back with you later. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Well, once again, thanks to Mike Schneider. Uh, you can follow him at Schneid's Poker on Twitter. Also, a quick shout-out to the Free Poker Network. Thanks again to you guys for supporting us. Next week, uh, we'll be broadcasting an interview that I just did with Hunter Sitchi. So many of you Minnesota folks know him, but he's now in Florida and doing some some cool things with check shove poker and some uh, some other things as well. So I think that's an interesting conversation that you'll enjoy with him. Make sure to follow us, Rec Poker, at, on Twitter. We've got a Rec Poker Facebook group, uh, and you can uh, follow the podcasts wherever you're getting them now, or through SoundCloud.com, or a variety of different ways. There, if you have any feedback at all, positive, negative ideas. Uh, shoot them to me either through Twitter, Facebook, or email stevefredland at gmail.com. Love to get the feedback. Uh, otherwise, until next week, thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Hope you enjoy it. Take care.